Stay tuned for the organic farm stand coming right up. Corn in the fields and listen to the rice when the wind blows across the water. King harvest is surely come. I work for the union because she's so good to me. WPKN's Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month. This is uh, the third Thursday of August. It's scary how fast the summer has gone, but in my opinion, the summer actually ended on June 21st when the days started getting shorter. shorter. Okay. My name is Richard Hill. We have an interesting show. I I see Chris Ferrio over there. Mm -hmm. Hi, Chris. Hey, Richard. Nice, to, well, nice of you to drop well, in. Welcome back this week. I had some uh, technical issues last time that uh, Steve was very helpful with. Okay, well, I hope uh, somebody's <laughs> here to help me with my technical issues. And who's that per- other person? That I, I wow, see some, somebody a, else over there. A stranger. Yeah, who? a, a, a uh, prodigal daughter returned. <laughs> Is that is that could it be <laughs> possibly Prue Cullen? Hello, Prue. Uh, how are you, Richard? Nice to be here. It's back, incredible back that you could be here. It is incredible. Prue and Cullen the- is an iconic figure <laughs> at WPKN. No, she absolutely is. She goes, I mean, she goes all the way back to early days, and she is the proprietor. The, the proprietor. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> she's probably a proprietor somewhere in, in, in her. She's also, well, she, she's a fine artist. She's a painter. She works in ceramics. She does all kinds of incredible things. But her story is coming up. But I just want to mention that Prue does have a, a long history here. And one of the really important connections she has is that she was the longtime life partner of Ruben Abreu who passed away, I guess, about a little over a year ago. Is that right? Prue? Yeah. yeah. Um, tragically. And um, Prue is a native of Australia. And I just want to mention, in terms of the connection to of how we're all connected here, is that Ruben is the, was, a, was an incredible um, programmer here at WPKN. And he had a show for years and years, and he was a, lo- a good friend of mine, and at a point in my life when I really needed to do something to get out of my head and uh, into my um, tongue, I guess you could say, to be able to talk on the air, Ruben was the person who mentored me 
to actually start doing radio here at PKN. Mm. That, that was over at our old studio at the University of Bridgeport. And, uh, you know, that was a whole different uh, technical setup. But was, I always said running that board was kind of like uh, driving a, a, a flying a 747. You know, I felt like whenever I got on that board, I had those, you know, it was like this gigantic uh, monstrous thing. <laughs> we had to somehow get it airborne, airborne as in airwaves. And also I want to mention... Lest we forget that Steve Mono is with us from Masaro Farm. Steve, hello. Hi, happy to be here with you. Great to have you. Steve is the executive director and farm director of Masaro Farm. And uh, he joins us every show to give us an update, which we call the Small Farms Report. Um, I was actually at Masaro Farm yesterday, Steve, and the world should know. I, I actually walked pretty much the whole, as far as I could find myself around the grounds and it is an, really a massive opera i mean to me a massive operation because i have like a a 12 by 8 foot little flower garden in my backyard and i was out there today weeding in the morning and i was like how does steve actually get that whole thing up and running and keep it going during the entire summer when i'm sure weeding is one of the things you have to do but Steve, uh, it's so great to have you once again. Tell us um, what's going on out there. And I have one question I want to put on the boards before I forget. My neighbor on uh, in, in Brantford, he has a what he describes as an organic garden in his backyard, which is means he he basically doesn't use any herbicides or pesticides in there, and. Um, and he uh, composts all his food in, in that garden. He it has it caged off, so the coyotes, the deer, the um, foxes, and other varmints can't get in there. But he said, and I want anybody in our listening audience to give us a call in if you have anything to back this up, that when the Canadian smoke was in the air, it left a deposit on the... Uh, plants in his garden, which actually inhibited the tomatoes and the zucchini. So he got very, almost no production from those plants this summer, but the eggplant thrived for some reason. I'm wondering, Steve, do you know anything about that effect from mm. the Canadian smoke? Um, so, you know, smoke in the air, you know, wherever you are, um, you know, whether it's, you know, here in, in New England and Connecticut throughout, uh, you know, the, the wildfires that we faced or in California in years past, it, it absolutely can affect uh, and impact the growing and production of, of our crops. Um, so, you know, on a, on a bigger scale, it can affect the big farms and it can affect small gardens as well. Um, I believe UConn Extension put out some notes uh, about that, you know, earlier in the season when we were in the midst of it. So, you know, and in terms of, some crops performing better, you know, as your friend noted, their eggplants, uh, you know, that I don't know that detail, but absolutely all sorts of crops can be impacted by, you know, what, what's in the air and when there's smoke and ash in the air, you know, we should expect an impact on, on our food production. Very interesting. Yes, I'm going to tell my uh, neighbor that he wasn't uh, wrong about that. He, he claims he could actually detect the deposit left by that smoke. In, in the soil, it was almost, he, he said it was almost like a, like a layer or 
crusty layer that he had to chip, <laughs> not, not chip away with a pickaxe or anything, but he could actually detect it as he was uh, cultivating his, his soil. That is, uh, that is really astounding and alarming that, you know, that this is this global effect from these fires and other uh, issues that we have with, with our environment are having that direct effect on food production. It's, it's really quite, uh, quite upsetting. So, uh, Steve, but tell us um, what is happening at the farm. As I said, I was out there yesterday. Things look wonderful, but uh, I'm, not, I'm not seeing the uh, forest for the trees. Is that, what I, is that how that expression goes? <laughs> so t- yeah. Tell us. Well, yeah, things are going great. I'm glad you're here and got to walk around. Sorry, I didn't, didn't get to walk around with you. But, um, you know, things are, are doing well and looking good because we've got a great team here. So you asked sort of how we do it and I do it. Well, you know, I do this because I've got a wonderful team. Uh, you know, a, a farm of this size, we're, we're growing on 10 acres, you know, requires a number of people working together well. And so, you know, there's folks out there right now, you know, um, weeding, weed whacking, pr- preparing for planting trellising our fall cucumbers which we're growing in one of our tunnels sort of a first effort at this we've often tried to get cucumbers going early in the tunnel and this year we're also trying to get cucumbers growing later into the season uh than we can by planting in the tunnel uh, which we just did in the last week and so now they're getting <clears throat> clipped onto a trellis um, so they can climb up um, and so that we can tend and harvest them hopefully over the next couple of months as our field plantings fade you know we're Mid-August right now is a time where we expect to be um, sort of swimming in tomatoes, and and happily we are. So you probably saw as you walked around lots of different colors and different shapes and sizes. Uh, We've got a great amount of tomatoes. We're about to, you know, take some to our local processor in New Haven to make salsa. Uh, We'll make some more of our marinara sauce and Bloody Mary mix. So this is a time where we, you know, use that abundance both for our CSA and to, to markets and to restaurants, but also to make that value-added product that we can offer year-round uh, by having it preserved in, in jars into the various sauces. So we're, you know, <clears throat> even in a year where we've had all sorts of different issues with, with, with weather and smoke, uh, we've got a great tomato harvest. We've had a really great summer squash harvest. Um, cucumbers are, are, have done well, you know, because we're trying to extend those on. And though you know, we don't grow much for apples, we've got a few trees here. This has been a big apple year. Um, and I'm hearing that's the case elsewhere, too. So, um, you know, we've got one old tree on the farm and a few younger trees, and they, they're they really well set. Uh, some of those are early varieties, so we've already been eating for a little while. And, we, you know, we partner with High Hill Orchard to offer fruit for our CSA subscribers here. And, you know, the, the earlier varieties of apples are available now. I know oftentimes we think about apples for the fall, but particularly in a year like this where we might be missing out on peaches uh, and plums, you know, locally because of the, the frost earlier in the year that wiped a lot of that out. It's a great year to explore some of those early apple varieties that are coming ready now, you know, from late July through August. Uh, varieties like ginger gold, which are coming up now, uh, Milton, uh, pristine, really nice apple varieties, great for eating. And they're not long storage apples so you know they come ready early in the season and they, we don't tend to see them on the shelves as much you know into the fall and winter because they're they're not uh, long storage apples like some of the later varieties are so this is a great time if you like apples 
you know, to get out to an orchard near you and see some of their early varieties because they're really delicious, great for snacking, eating fresh, you know, making sauces or, or, or using in salads and such uh, that you might not find later in the season. So nice time to support orchards, you know, who might be missing out on peaches but have other other options for you right now. Hey, Steve, um, I just wanted to ask, um, first of all, thanks a lot for uh, improvising last week while I was trying to figure out my technical difficulties. You, uh, I was listening uh, again to that show, and, and um, you carried it pretty well, you know, for, for that, like eight minutes or so. Um, but my question about apples is, is it difficult to grow apples organically? Because um, I, in my whole lifetime, Every apple tree I ever saw in someone's yard yielded non-edible fruit. <laughs> and um, I'm just kind of wondering, because I've never seen uh, like a, a wild apple that was edible. Sure. Well, you know, the wild apples out there are often, you know, crab apples that they're not maintained as well. They might not be as good. But I, I can say there's a, there's a you know big apple tree right outside my yard or right outside my door. Uh, and it has more apples than I could possibly eat. Now, most of them, well, I might not want to eat fresh. They're, you know, we're letting them drop to the ground. Um, so we're not, you know, getting up on ladders and picking them out. But we could process them. We can eat them fresh as they drop. Um, but, yes, managing trees organically is hard, um, mostly because of moisture issues and, and mildew and things that, you know, you would maybe want to uh, manage with a spray of some kind, but that aren't organically approved. So in New England, you know, we've got a lot of moisture, we've got a lot of humidity. That's going to affect um, the leaves on the trees. It's going to affect the flowers and the blossoms as they develop. So it's challenging. Um, and that's why you get a lot of, um, you know, no spray or low spray, but not a lot of certified organic because a lot of the growers need to keep some of those tools on hand uh, just in case the conditions allow it, you know, and that's different than an orchard that might spray no matter what the conditions are to ensure it. So mm. it is tough, um, but there's plenty of good fruit to be eaten. And, and if you're not, you know, a commercial farm, if you're not trying to make, uh, you know, your living on the trees, you can absolutely grow, you know, a, a tree, not spray it and have plenty of fruit to eat. And the, the trees we have here at Masaro are a testament to that. There's way more fruit than could feed our family and friends, you know, not our CSA, but uh, a few trees can feed us plentiful, plenty to put up, and we don't do a thing to it in terms of, you know, pesticide management or, or fungicide management on it. We just, we just let them grow free. Okay, thank you. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, when you, we, you go to the, health food market or something like that, and you're looking for organic apples, they all seem to come from the Pacific Northwest. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering how they manage, <laughs> because in Connecticut, it's virtually impossible to find an organic, uh, yeah. com commercial organic orchard. I think there's one up in Northwestern Connecticut. But, the, you know, it's, it, most of, as you said, most, most of them are just not, they can't do it. So how do they do it in the Pacific Northwest? I'm curious if you know. Yeah, well, you'll see oftentimes they're in the interior. You know, there's certainly plenty of orchards along the coast, but a lot of the bigger orchards are, are in the interior in the rain shadow. So they, they're not getting um, the rain and moisture that they are, that they would on the coast. And so it's those kind of high desert and in inland Washington, inland or uh, Oregon, Central Valley, California, um, where, you know, they don't have the same kind of moisture um, impact in their trees and, and getting into humidity and, and, and fungal issues. 
Um, so it's a lot easier for them to manage it. It's sort of simple as that from the moisture issue. All right. So any any other news from the farm? Maybe you could talk about some of the events coming up, because I know your calendar is pretty full as the fall approaches. Yeah, you know, our, our summer camp has ended, although we do still have a few spots for our sort of gap week camp. You know, a lot of camps end uh, now, and then there's a few weeks before um, school starts and, and parents are looking for stuff to do. So we, we've got a, a camp next week for, for one week and then back to school. We've got our, our annual fundraiser dinner on the farm happening Sunday, September 10th. Uh, we're closing in on selling out of that. So there's there's a few tickets left, but it's a really wonderful dinner and helps us fund uh, you know the produce donations that we do here, uh, as well as our educational programs, many of which are offered you know free or sliding scale. So that's a big event for us coming up. And then we'll have you know various programming. We've got a, a beekeeping workshop actually this Saturday uh, here at Masaro, 9 a.m. Um, you can register online or, or show up at 9 a.m. Uh, Saturday beekeeping workshop. Um, there'll be another one in September as well as a, a number of um, uh, educational programs. We should have a, a calendar up or and announcements on our website uh, in the next couple of weeks as we sort of make that summer to fall transition. Excellent. All right. And before I forget, I, I, I want to make sure that everybody is aware that our special guest today is Michael Nado, I'm going to pronounce it correctly, uh, but his, uh, he's really known as Michael Nadeau. He is an organic land care specialist, and he's been on the show before, but it's, he's such a wonderful guest. And he's, it's been, a, I would say, over a year since we've had him, Chris, and so I think it's be great to have him back and, and give us an update on what he's doing what, what his programs are and, uh, you know, how the, kind of the interaction between land care, organic land care and the pollinator pathways that we always talk about. So that might be interesting. And um, but as we uh, continue to uh, have Steve with us to uh, to give us updates and interact with our many uh, moving parts here today, let's bring in our special other special guest, Prue Cullen. Uh, dear Prudence, who is with, <laughs> <laughs> with us today. And we are so glad because she's about to uh, take off again for back to Australia. Uh, just to, to give you a little background about her, she is currently a sheep farmer from the town of Coonamble, which is in New South Wales, Australia. Prue, tell us a little bit about the place that you live, this uh, you know what 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 the environment is like, what the topography is like, and some of the struggles you've had, and and transitions you've had to make based on the climate change issues that have really been impacting Australia majorly. Yeah, well, we are like I think we're the most vulnerable sort of first world nation um, for climate change, and uh, it's happening down there, and it's. Um, rather frightening, I'd, I'd say. I'm quite frightened about it. Um, I've had to adapt. Uh, I have, I, I only, well, I'll say, I only have a thousand acres and I know that sounds a lot to people, but where <laughs> I live, it's normal to have, you know, 8,000 acres, 15,000 acres, 50,000 acres. So you basically, I would be a hobby farmer, I'd say. But I did run um, uh, about 150 head of Black Angus cattle um, when I came back from the States and took uh, took over um, 
the farm. And that was a family operation. It was right? a family operation. Yeah. That's right. And um, I kept a thousand acres for myself uh, because I, I'm not into broadacre farming. And there's a lot of you know toxic chemicals and pesticides, and it's huge out there. They've knocked down a lot of trees. It's a bit of a scary landscape in for me. I don't like. I don't feel comfortable with it. But anyway, I inherited cattle, um, black Angus, and they were. I, I, I loved my cows, but. We went into a rather severe drought and during that time I was feeding them, hand feeding them. So I had my brother-in-law who loaded up my little utility vehicle um, every couple of days uh, with big bales, huge big bales of hay and I'd head off out into the paddock and as soon as they, they'd all be waiting at the gate for me and uh, then we'd set off and I'd have to keep the truck going. I'd have to put <laughs> in gear and cut the back and then just set it off and then they in a clear path and then with this great big, you know, uh, we used to call it the prondonical, but it was a great big um, hoe, big three-pronged, I don't know what you call it, but it's big, But you'd, and pull all this hay off and the cattle would be all around me eating it. I did that for like two and a half years and mm. at, during that time I, I was extremely frightened because every day I would walk out and of my house and just look at the trees dying around me. And, you know, you would see, you would be driving along the road and you would see kangaroos who can't get to water and you would see them just actually swaying, like, mm. as they, you know, became thirsty and, and dying. It was, it was a very scary uh, time for me and it really just... Uh, brought home to me what the future is going to be. Um, these extreme periods of uh, extreme dry where we're losing. We lost a lot of our trees. I just, uh, uh, that made me so sad just to go, go be in the paddock and just see trees dying. It's just horrible. And so many trees had been knocked down out there, you know, and, and this big broadacre farming, this big Monsanto vehicle that runs our agricultural, you know, our food production out there. which Monsanto is a big player. Yeah, yeah. Well, they produce every, you know, they, they're Bayer now, I think. Um, yeah, but exactly. Yeah, right. But they're, you know, it's all chemicals. It's a chemical mm. loop that you have to go through and it's highly expensive. It's a high investment. I don't know how people are going to make money in the future. I think it's, you have to invest millions into it to, I mean, I guess in the end you make, if you have a good season, you make millions. But we haven't been having good seasons. We had the last season that we had was um, after I got through the drought, and which in that time I got shingles three times. So that's how stressed I was, just keeping these cattle alive, mm. and then slowly but surely selling them off down to a reasonable, you know, because the market dropped, of course. Um, so trying to or play that game and trying to understand waiting to see if there was rain coming and then you'd be saved and you wouldn't be feeding and, you know, anyway, that so crazy did, cycle. Yeah, how did the drought affect that in, in terms of the feed food supply for the animals? Yeah, well, that was, of course, the price of feed just went through the roof. You know, I, I'd hate to think how much money I spent on feed for the cattle. It'd be over hundreds of thousands of dollars, I think, really, mm. and getting big trucks in, huge trucks in and you know, getting them unloaded, um, yeah. And then, of course, got rid of m most of my cattle and the rain came <laughs> <laughs> and we had a La Nina come in 
And we have had three years of this intense rain where we've been flooded all the time. So getting into town for me was I have a big four-wheel drive vehicle with a snorkel on it so I can go through <laughs> <laughs> go through creeks to get into town. Um, but, you know, there were days that we couldn't get in and uh, lots of people got flooded in for, like, months out there and mm. then people were dropping um, uh, food off to them, like the government had to come in and drop food off. But then the f- crops all got soaked and then you couldn't get the headers in to get the crops off and then you got this rust in or you got these terrible diseases that came from too much moisture. Mm. So you could see, I was just watching how the whole food uh, process was being affected by this extreme weather. And, I mean, we're going back into an El Nino now, which is very scary. I switched out of cattle into sheep and did my research and came to the conclusion that Dorpers were the best. They're actually a breed that were bred at the, in South Africa at a university there um, and for drought conditions. And I would consider that we live in a very dry climate. Uh, the climate that I'm in is um, hot and dry. I'd say our average rainfall was 16 to 20 inches a year. Uh, think California weather. That's basically what we have. The winters are great. The summers are hot. Um, yeah, so now I have these sheep and, and I mean, they're, they're beautiful animals um, and they're meat sheep, so I'm not um, getting any wool off them and I've had to improve my infrastructure so I had to improve all of the fencing because they're escape artists and they <laughs> manage to escape all the time. <laughs> so it's always, you know, getting a phone call from the neighbour at Peru, uh, I think there's some of the sheep in my crop and it's sort of like, oh, no. So I had to put money into infrastructure, making smaller paddocks for them, uh, getting the infrastructure of water organised. We're on the Great Artesian Basin out there, so water's never been an issue and it's the only thing that's really kept us going. Um, is that's that, that's yeah. your water supply. Yeah, that is our water supply. Yeah, underground. That's right. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, so now we're back into feeding sheep because we're coming into this dry season again. And every second day we're feeding. And now I'm thinking when I head back, I'm going to have to set up a feed lot for them. And that's another big investment in infrastructure. And I don't know that I really want to go down that path, to be honest. Um, I think I might be getting over the whole farming thing and, you know, agriculture indulgence that I'm having right now, food production. Um, Yeah, so it's going to be an interesting segue back from being in the US to back into uh, New South Wales and to a drought. I'm pretty sure we're we're headed for a drought. Prue, I'm just wondering, you said it was a sheep that doesn't uh, produce wool? Yeah, they're just meat sheep. They have hair. And they okay. just go and rub themselves. <laughs> you see bits of white hair along the fences, along trees. It falls out. Um, they get itchy and go and rub it off. Yeah, they're rather beautiful. They've got black faces. And mm-hmm. um, so, so in essence, you're talking about um, meat meat production. Yeah, just meat okay. production. Okay. Yeah. And uh, one other question. Um, I'm going back into the environmental issue. What you're describing, is that generally for the whole continent of Australia or just where you are? Yeah, I'd say for, well, it's a big, Australia is a very big continent. It's the same size as the USA, mm-hmm. which people often don't understand. It's a, it's a desert continent, though. The mm-hmm. whole interior is a desert. It's very, very dry. And most people live around the edge of Australia. 
um, on the coast. We're about um, 365 miles inland um, and we're not remote, but um, people consider that we're called outback. We're not outback like in the Northern Territory or the back of Queensland. I mean, but it's dry and hot, but it's been a very uh, good uh, food um, producing area for, well, all through my child, the time that I can remember. But now, of course, with climate change, we're getting very compromised. And I think that's a huge, you know, a game changer. And of course, a lot of climate deniers out there, if you can believe that. So <laughs> <laughs> just like over here, you know, just like, it's, like it's, everywhere. it's politically inconvenient to um, understand the science mm. and uh, keeping, you know, the vested interests. I think we I think we donate $10 billion a year to coal and gas in Australia, mm. which is one of our major exports. Donate as in support the industries? Subsidise. Subsidise. Yeah, 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 okay. which is pretty sad. Yeah. Oh, man, yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, we still have, we have this bifurcated thing here where, you know, on, on the one hand, we have a, a president who is relatively, uh, you know, savvy and understands the science mm-hmm. and is pursuing programs like the Inflation Reduction Act, which is, a, you know, it's, it's kind of a tax incentive to industry to create renewable energy sources. Um, but um, meanwhile, he's he's developing uh, drilling in, in the Arctic and... Uh, we just gonna, this mountain valley pipeline is going to go through, so it's uh, it's just bifurcated, as I said, and very. Well, there's, very there's no vision. I mean, there doesn't seem to be any leadership or vision around how we can transfer or have a different lifestyle. It seems to me. I know it's happening. I know that probably um, the the green industry is um, huge uh, and and is creating a lot of jobs. You know. But uh, there's some dodgy practices out there that, you know, this carbon sequestering sort of oh, thing, yeah. which is like, excuse me, <laughs> what are you doing? You, t- you know, you're taking all of the carbon that's coming out of all of these mines and everything and sequester, digging a hole in the ground and pumping it into, back into the earth. I mean, it's so they can keep it going. It's like, it's a fantasy, really. It's not, not healthy. I mean, we should just be planting a lot of trees, I think. Yeah, I um, yeah, carbon capture. I mean, they've been talking about it for years, and I don't think they're doing. There's any technology or anything for it. No, it's a (laughs) boondoggle. (laughs) Well, my friends, um, I'm going to ask you to cease and desist for a moment while I introduce our next guest, Mike Nadeau. Are you with us? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. I, I just okay. earlier said, you know, that Americans are kind of can't be bothered to pronounce <laughs> things correctly. So your name, Nado, is known as in this country as Nadu, and that's how you <laughs> that's how you are known by by most of uh, your constituency. So I'm not sure which way we'll go here today. But thank you so much for joining us today, Mike. You're welcome. And Mike is just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mike, I'm just going to throw in my my little two cents, and that is that I went to school with your family members, and we always said, NATO, that's how we pronounced it growing up. 
NATO. Okay, well, that's better than no, NATO. NATO. Yeah, NATO. Just, just NATO. NATO. N-A-D-O. Yeah, and De- I believe Dennis was my age. Is that? Dennis was your age. Yep, Dennis yep. Is, is in Austin, Texas. Okay. So, um, how about just Mike? <laughs> Yeah, yeah we'll, just Mike is good. We'll okay. stick with Mike today. All right. Well, Mike, it's great to have you. Just a, a little bit about your um, your bio. Uh, you know, 30 years in the organic landscaping business. Um, you are known as one of the leading authorities in the field of sustainable and ethical land care in the United States. Um, you helped to develop the New England Organic Farming Association's Standards for Organic Land and Lawn Care and the NOFA Land Care and Turf Course Manual, which is the only 100% manual for the care of athletic fields and home lawns. And, organic. Uh, th- did I say organic? Did I not say organic? No, you yeah. said something else, but... What did I say? I, I don't know. <laughs> okay. You just left out the word organic, and that's a really important word. <laughs> yes, indeed it is, That because that is indeed why you are in a class by yourself in terms of the sustainability of our public spaces, which is critical, you know, and and we're going to talk a little bit about the scope of your uh, activities in Connecticut. I'd like to invite uh, Steve Munno to join in at any point here. Uh, Steve is uh, the executive director and farm director for Masaro Farm. Mike, he's joins us each each show here. But um, Mike, tell us a little bit about what your activities have been, have they expanded in Connecticut and perhaps in uh, the broader New England area in terms of trying to convert our public spaces, our schoolyards, you know, athletic fields, parklands, and other spaces like that from chemically sustained to organically sustained? Okay. Well, first of all, hello, Steve. Hello, Chris. Hello, Richard. Yeah. And hello, Prue. My goodness, what an interesting uh, uh, talk Prue had there. Um, Certainly. Really depressing, but very, very honest and true. So what's going on right now in uh, the northwest corner of Connecticut, where I live up in Sharon here, um, we are doing quite a few wildflower meadows, and we're taking um, lawn out of service and changing it over to uh, native wildflower meadows. And to the tune of about around 40 to 50 acres right now, so far, um, the latest ones have been at the uh, Salisbury Association Land Trust property uh, right in the center of Salisbury. And across the street, a really good client and friend of mine, uh, Jeb Brees, uh, took his whole front yard out and uh, we installed a, well, you don't install a meadow, you actually tend and plant and love and care for a meadow from seed, and they're both in their glory. Right now, we have people stopping all over the place uh, to take photos, and it's uh, it's looking really beautiful. And then just up the road um, at the Salisbury uh, School, private uh, boys' school, um, we did a six-acre meadow, and the it's right on the front slope as you drive up Route 41. It's right in your face. Uh, the top of the hill is the chapel for the school, and Below, there's a six-acre lawn that was lawn since they started the school 130 years ago. Um, So we used organic methods on all these meadows, and 
removed the turf that was there and infused uh, native wildflowers and uh, and grasses. So that's the big thing that's happening now. Um, on the educational front, I definitely want to plug the four-day, uh, 30-hour in-person organic land care course that we're going to be teaching in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, October 30th through November 2nd. That's Monday through Thursday. It's at the Portland uh, Portsmouth Historical Society in de- right in downtown Portsmouth. Um, and we're doing that in conjunction with non-toxic Portsmouth and non-toxic Dover, uh, both New Hampshire towns. And the topics include um, site analysis, soil health, organic amendments, planting and plant care, organic turf management, stormwater management, the business of organic land care, organic tree care, and a lot more. Um, and people that go through the course, uh, mostly professionals and concerned homeowners, earn an accredited uh, organic land care professional um, credential called an AOLCP, which stands for Accredited Organic Land Care Professional. And it's really highly regarded in our industry. People search us out. Um, and there's a stellar lineup of teachers. I mean, some of the best teachers in the country. Chip Osborne is teaching organic turf. He is by far and large the uh, number one organic turf guy in the country. He does professional athletic fields, uh, school properties, all kinds of things. And then um, Monique Bosch uh, yeah. is a uh, microscope specialist, and I can go on and on. Um, lots and lots of really good uh, topics that directly relate to how to do organic land care, not just what it is, but how to do it. Yeah, well, maybe <clears throat> without attending the course, maybe you could share some of the wisdom that will be presented there. I know that, you know, your life mission here in New England, and especially in Connecticut, has been to try to get as much land moved from the highly chemically uh, managed way into the natural organic way. So how, how does a lawn get converted into a wildflower meadow? Well, um, it's different for each property, but I can give you the basics. The first thing we do is we speak with the client and figure out how much uh, lawn we can remove. Because where lawn is well-maintained organically and where it's well-sized, uh, lawn is an asset to a landscape. So we don't want to remove it all. Um, but we do want to remove most, especially any unused uh, lawn. And the first thing we do is discuss that with the client, get a plan, mark things out with flags or garden hoses or whatever to see the shape and make sure that the shape actually fits onto the landscape rather than into it, and um, or maybe the other way around. And then we scalp mow it. We take a mower and mow it extremely close to the ground and vacuum all that debris out. And then we scuff up the soil surface with uh, a machine called a Harley rake or something similar, which buffs up the surface roots and exposes many of the roots to the sun. So the sun is our first herbicide. And then from there, we will apply a mixture of organic um, horticultural vinegar, which is 30% acidity and also citrus oil, 100% pure citrus oil, 
that gets mixed with um, uh, salt flour. So it's a salt that has been pulverized down to a flour consistency. And then that is mixed with uh, so many ounces of dish soap to emulsify the, um, the citrus oil. And then finally, the last ingredient is a blue marker dye. So we can see where we applied and how heavily. Um, and then we apply that mix over the regrowing uh, grass that's coming up after we uh, buffed up the soil surface. And we do that until we have 95% control. So it's usually a minimum of two, uh, sometimes three applications. And then uh, we will sow. Um, I'll develop a, a, a seed mix depending on uh, soil, soil testing. So we do both standard soil testing and also uh, particle size and sand silt clay percentages. And I'll come up with a, uh, a seed mix of uh, perennial uh, wildflowers and grasses that I think are appropriate for the site. And then uh, we use a, for larger properties, we use a no-till seed drill. Um, it's a machine that cuts little slits, drops the seed, and then rolls the slits closed. And the important thing with this machine is it's got three different bins. Um, one bin is for seed size that's about the size of dust particles, tiny little seeds, and then one for medium seed and uh, one for fluffy and large seed. And they're dropped individually onto the ground in different depths. So the light seed may be scattered on top, and the largest seed will be drilled into the ground and then covered up. And it really affords excellent germination and prevents uh, washout from rain and, and such. So that's basically what we do. And then after that, we watch things grow. Like right now, the Salisbury School Meadow, uh, we have um, non-native but non-invasive annual wildflowers as what we call a nurse crop. So they come up really quickly, and they hold the soil and prevent erosion and cast a little bit of shade so that the moisture stays in the soil surface. We haven't had real problem with moisture this year. Um, but they're starting to come up now, and we should have flower color um, next month in September, which gives a little bit of uh, bang for their money um, early on in the, uh, the meadow season. Some of them will self-sow and come back next spring, but mostly the secondary nurse crop and the uh, early successional plants will start to uh, develop their uh, root systems and their basal rosettes probably in September. And um, next spring, they'll be in uh, full force. And from there on, for the next three years, we uh, generally will walk through the, the, the meadow areas and hand weed or uh, spot treat the um, any noxious weeds that are coming up with an organic herbicide. Generally, what we use is the vinegar again with a cotton glove, um, and we wet the cotton glove. Of course, we have a chemical-resistant glove on first. Then the cotton glove slips over that. We dip the cotton glove in the um, uh, organic herbicide, and then we wipe the plants that we want to control um, it gives you really, really fine control. You don't get a lot of collateral damage. There's nothing in the air to be sprayed. Um, and generally, if the site prep is done very, very well, 95% control, and if the seed mix is appropriate to the site, um, weeding is generally not a big deal. 
Um, the one big drawback often is if there's invasive plants that are off the site that I do not have control over. Um, they can blow weed seeds in constantly. And, of course, all kinds of critters bring weed seeds in, too. So it's never a one-and-done with a wildflower meadow. It's an ongoing thing. But the diversity that you get in the beauty um, and the show-stopping quality of a meadow is just, it's so worth it compared to a lawn. A lawn has been uh, likened to a, an ecological desert, and it truly is. Hmm. Wow. Steve, any, any thoughts on this uh, amazing description we've just heard? Well, it's incredible work that you, you are doing now, Mike, and that you've been doing uh, over the years. Uh, you know, and there's still so much more to be done. I mean, the, the conversion of, of land and, and restoring these, um, you know, restoring these spaces into healthy ecological systems is just incredibly important for us going forward. So uh, I'm just, it's great to hear you describe in detail all the work you've been doing. Thank you. Yeah, the pollinator uh, issue is huge and the birds. Um, this is what's really pushing it up here. Um, when I say pushing it, I mean the ecological land care. Um, we're not only doing meadows, we're converting uh, landscapes from conventional plantings, which include um, a lot of non-native plants and also, you know, quite a few invasive plants that were planted um, years ago as landscape plants. And I have to say that I'm culpable with that, too. Back in my day, early days, a plant was a plant was a plant. Um, and now, you know, it's uh, there's a huge change because we realize that the invasives, uh, many of them anyway, are actually uh, extremely harmful to the uh, native um, uh, pollinators and birds that depend on those on those on those pollinators. Eighty three percent of the food we eat, from what I, I just read, uh, is pollinated by insects. And uh, if we like to eat, we need to have the insects, and the insects are in real trouble right now. So these uh, wildflower meadows are one of the best things we can do, removing invasive plants and planting um, native shrubs that flower and have uh, four season interest. Um, this is what's really pushing the um, ecological landscape movement up here right now is um, people are really getting educated, and they're afraid. They realize that there's real changes happening right in their yards, and they can make a difference. Any questions from Prue or Chris? Well, well, Mike, I'd have to say I, I, I love to hear this story. It's just wonderful, and I can understand the urgency that people are starting to feel um, in their own local backyard, as you're saying. Um, just a, a question. Do you have gift certificates? <laughs> <laughs> I've been down to Australia and would love a visit. <laughs> well, there, maybe you could work out an exchange. Oh, maybe an I exchange for that. <laughs> <laughs> Although I have given up flying for I, um, uh, climate reasons. Yeah, so I, I, I hear you. I hear you. I take a freighter down. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I've looked into that. You can take freighters, right? Oh yes, my God. I have looked into it too. Yeah. Yep. yeah. How, how long does this take? <laughs> it's a slow ride. It's a slow ride. <laughs> probably a few months, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I would think. Yeah. But they do, you can get on a freighter, actually, yeah. which is interesting. But I, I mean, I'm sort of serious. I have people in, in um, Connecticut, like very good friends of mine, that have big expanses of lawn. And I would be, lo I would love to have 
you know, a gift certificate, if I could get a gift certificate, which could get them introduced into something like mm. what, what the education that you're, you're, you know, you're doing right Great now. Great idea. Great idea. I'd be happy to do that. Yeah, I think it's, you know, and it's something where people go, oh, they're not, everyone's sort of glued to their lawns or they're stuck in their own bad habits mm. around. And, you know, it's nice to see... Anyway, I'm losing my words, but I just think it'd be a wonderful gift for people to just open up their minds and... and uh, Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, the whole idea about Salisbury School, um, uh, if you've ever driven up Route 41, um, it's, it's, the, it's very, very dominant on the very top of the hill. Mm-hmm. And um, they gave us the most visible piece of land on the entire property to do this wildflower meadow. And the reason why is because they want to influence others. Um, They know the way things are going and they're teaching their, their young men um, that, you know, we're in a world of trouble Yeah, and it's really up to them to fix it. And they want to, uh, because we didn't. (laughs) Yeah. So they want to give practical uh, experience to the kids. So there were two boys that go to the school. I shouldn't call them boys. They're young men um, that actually worked directly with me and several of the teachers um, to create the uh, the wildflower meadow. They did the outline of the meadow, and they helped me with seed selection um, and a lot of the theory and the um, selling of it to their administrators mm. uh, was done by the students and a, and a couple of the teachers. Wow. Mike, I have a, a question about your description of this pretty, I, I would say, daunting process of, of clearing a, a conventional lawn, you know, preparing the palette, let's say, for the for the wildflower that you're going to do there. I mean, basically, it sounds to me like what you're doing is you're, you're really trying to kill off the, the original grass that was there and, and then prepare the soil for, make the soil... Uh, you know, inviting for for the wildflower seeds, is is that generally what's happening? Richard, let's find another word than kill. I don't. <laughs> <know>. <laughs> Euthanasia. How about, re- I don't know. How about, re- how about replace? <laughs> oh, that's really good, Chris. Thanks. So I I like to replace the turf uh, with wildflower meadows, and the um, the big thing is that wildflower meadow seed. Uh, the tough natives that I'd like to use could care less about percentage of organic matter. They could care less about um, how deep the topsoil is. They would grow very well. And some of the easiest meadows to do are the ones that are done in the poorest of soils. So the reason why I do the soil testing is um, the sandier the soil, uh, the more, um, uh, more finite I have to be with the um, the wildflowers that I choose and grasses. And also, the pH of the soil is rather important. If the pH is up near 7 or in, in the neutral range, um, that will really favor the cool season grasses, which are my number one weed that I start with. So we usually will, if the pH is near, nor, uh, near neutral, I will add uh, sulfur sometimes up to 20 pounds per thousand square feet to uh, plunge the pH lower um, because the wildflowers don't care. But the um, 
the cool season grasses, the European cool season grasses really do care. And it slows them down and gives my wildflowers a chance to have a leg up. Mm. Um, mm. But yeah, it's a, uh, it's a real art and science. Yeah. And I've been doing meadows for over 40 years. And I can honestly tell you that I've never done any two that behave the same. Never once. They're like fingerprints. They throw curveballs, sliders, fastballs. <laughs> things come out of nowhere. Um, uh, but that's half the fun, or more than half the fun, actually, is the challenge of it all. I have one other question about the maintenance of of your wildflower lawn once you've created it. Actually, you mentioned putting, um, I guess, a vinegar-soaked glove. And, and just describe that process again. You you are you you don't want to. I guess you don't want to pull the weeds up. You want to kill them. Uh, or should I say euthanize them? Very good, Richard. <laughs> yep. We want to replace them. <laughs> no, but I mean, in other words, is the idea there, if you pull them up, you'll be disturbing the soil, so you're trying to, uh, you know, kill them in place. And, and You are right on top of okay, it, Okay, yeah. That's, that's, that's what, one thing. Plus, if you, if you think about a young meadow, um, all the desirable plants are only in seedling form, so their root systems are tenuous at best. So um, if you pull a weed next to one of those, you're going to dislodge a bunch of the goodies. You're also going to disturb the soil, which is going to expose more weed seed. So we either cut certain weeds right at the ground, or we use the glove of death treatment that I just explained. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, it could be a better term for that too. But that's, I'm going to uh, wear those. Turn. I'm going to wear those for Halloween this year. I think. <laughs> um, I, I, I just w- I want to remind folks that you are tuned to the WPKN and you're listening to the Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you first and third Thursday of each month. We'll have another show coming up, bright and right September seventh. I wrote. Oh, thank yep. you, Chris. And our guest here right now is Michael Nadeau, who is uh, an organic land care specialist. I want to thank everybody for being on the show today. What a great combination of ingredients we had, personalities, information. Thank you, Steve Munno, for being with us. Mike, again, thanks so much. Chris, Chris Ferriero, and our special treat from... (laughs) From down under. (laughs) From the desert continent, Australia. Thank you. Thank you you all. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, Richard. This is the Gaia-Gram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. In the first ruling of its kind nationwide, a Montana state court decided Monday in favor of young people who alleged the state violated their right to a clean and healthy environment by promoting the use of fossil fuels. The court determined that a provision in the Montana Environmental Policy Act has harmed the state's environment and the young plaintiffs by preventing Montana from considering the climate impacts of energy projects. The win, experts say, could energy 
re-energize the environmental movement and reshape climate litigation across the country, ushering in a wave of cases aimed at advancing action on climate change. Wildfires were once rare across the Hawaiian Islands, but drought, invasive species, and human development have pushed Hawaii into a fiery new age. In an eerie echo of 2018's campfire, which sped through the town of Paradise, California, destroying 19,000 buildings and killing 85 people, ferocious wildfires tore through Maui, forcing some people to flee into the ocean. Much of the town of Lahaina is now ash, and the death toll stands at over 100 so far, with thousands of animals perishing. Like so many other places around the world, the island of Maui is being swept into the Age of Flames, also known as as the Pyrocene. The Pacific Northwest is facing its second major heat wave of the summer following an early heat wave in May. The extreme heat first arrived in parts of Washington and Oregon State on Sunday and is expected to last through the week. Amid a scorching heat wave, the Moroccan Meteorological Service said Sunday that temperatures in Morocco have for the first time on record topped 120 degrees Fahrenheit in the North African country. The heat wave is due to the influx of dry and hot air from the south, causing a significant rise in temperatures, surpassing the monthly average by 5 to 13 degrees. Catalonia, Spain, declared a drought emergency in 24 municipalities last week following a lack of rainfall for over the last 30 months. Spain registered the driest start to a year in the first four months of 2023 since records began in the 1960s, with Catalonia and southern Spain's Andalusia being the most affected. Several heat waves recorded in Spain and wider Europe this summer have worsened the drought, lowering reservoir levels as water evaporation and consumption increased. According to the New York Times, across the country, a profound shift is taking place that is nearly invisible to most Americans. The nation that burned coal, oil, and gas for more than a century to become the richest economy on the planet, as well as historically the most polluting, is rapidly shifting away from fossil fuels. Wind and solar power are breaking records, and renewables are now expected to overtake coal by 2025 as the world's largest source of electricity. Automakers have made electric vehicles central to their business strategies and are openly talking about an expiration date on the internal combustion engine. Heating, cooling, cooking, and some manufacturing are all going electric. As found in Euronews, officials report that India's greenhouse emissions rate dropped by 33% in 14 years. This drop is faster than expected and is caused by a rise in renewable energy generation and forest cover. The report's findings showed India well on the way to meeting a commitment to the United Nations Convention on Climate Change to reduce emissions intensity by 45% by 2030. And the Cooldown website reports that New Jersey is about to get the nation's biggest ever offshore wind farm with enough energy to power nearly 400,000 homes. The Ocean Wind One project will include 98 wind turbines and three offshore substations and offer 1,100 megawatts of power and will be located 13 nautical miles southeast of Atlantic City, New Jersey. This was the Gaiagram. Environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. 
WPKN programming is supported by Novamont, a Connecticut company, manufacturers of Matterbee, a family of completely biodegradable and compostable bioplastics, which are being used to provide low environmental impact solutions for everyday products. More information is available at materbi.com slash en. You're listening to WPKN Bridgeport, 89.5 FM and streaming at 